This is an ABC podcast. On the 27th of July, 1656, the Talmud Torah congregation of Amsterdam issued a harem against one of its members. A harem is an official decree of expulsion or excommunication from a Jewish community, and the community member being punished in this way was the 23-year-old philosopher Baruch Spinoza. We don't know exactly what his crimes had been. The record mentions abominable heresies, wicked ways and monstrous deeds, but it doesn't go into specifics. What we do know is that Spinoza's philosophy was, and is, based on a profound rejection of conventional religious thinking, and that Spinoza remains an ambivalent figure among Orthodox Jews today. I was once visiting, um, my sister lives in Jerusalem, and I was visiting her, and I went with my brother-in-law to his yeshiva, and I was talking with somebody, and this old rabbi in the corner looks up and he says, did I hear somebody mention Spinoza? And I explained, yes, I'm, you know, I'm studying Spinoza. And he looks at me and he just shakes his head and goes right back to his book. Obviously disappointed. That's Stephen Nadler. He's a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he's the author of Think Least of Death, Spinoza on How to Live and How to Die. I'm David Rutledge. Stephen Nadler joins me this week in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. And uh, Stephen, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to, in this conversation, I mean, I'm interested in, in Spinoza's Judaism, among many other things, and his his relationship to that heritage. So by way of getting there, let's start with God, because Spinoza is often seen as the, the first philosopher of the rational enlightenment. And as such, he's been celebrated by atheists ever since. And yet Spinoza still finds some use for the notion of God. In the ethics, he writes that whatever is, is in God. He also writes about the necessity of the divine nature. In what ways does Spinoza espouse a kind of atheism, and in what ways doesn't he do that? Well, there's a great deal of debate on that. Um, I, for one, prefer the atheistic reading, um, but I think I'm in a minority. Um, Many uh, people who study Spinoza regard him as more of a pantheist. Uh, One thing he's not is that he does not believe there's a transcendent providential deity the god of the Abrahamic religions. Um, Whether or not he's a pantheist or an atheist depends really on what you think the proper attitude to take towards God or nature is. And this phrase, God or nature, that's Spinoza's phrase. So he's clearly identifying God with nature. Um, But we know that Spinoza's God doesn't have any psychological characteristics. This is not a God who has beliefs or expectations or hopes It's not a God who exercises judgment. Uh, And Spinoza's God also doesn't have any moral characteristics. God is not just and wise and good. Um, God just is nature, and whatever is, is nature or part of nature. And so rather than divinizing nature and turning nature into an object of worship, I think what he's doing is uh, taking God and reducing it to nature. All there is is what there is, and that is nature and everything that belongs to nature and is governed by nature's laws. So no personal God. God is nature and, and nature is all there is. Uh, so this, this is where he picks up on a certain notion of Descartes, right, who, who he admired very much. Descartes' notion of everything being res extensa, modifications of the same substance. Is Spinoza a, a sort of a thoroughgoing Cartesian in that respect? Well, I would say he actually departs quite significantly from Descartes when it comes to God, uh, because Descartes' God is a transcendent God. 
And in the meditations, Descartes uses the benevolence and the infinite nature and the omnipotence of God to justify his own rational faculties. So maybe Descartes' God is not a personal agent. It's not a God that you would turn to for comfort. But Descartes' God is very much a God who you can rely on in terms of moral character. And so Descartes' God is distinct from nature. So in that respect, uh, Spinoza departs from Descartes. He also criticizes Descartes' God explicitly. Um, He thinks that Descartes' notion of God as an infinitely perfect being who creates all truths through the sheer act of will um, this is just an absurd notion. Um, Spinoza's God doesn't have a will. It doesn't make choices. So on, on the matter of God, I think here Descartes and Spinoza part company. On the other hand, Descartes' philosophy was certainly influential on Spinoza, and a lot of the categories and concepts of Spinoza's philosophy come out of Descartes, this notion of clear and distinct perception, his view of the power of reason to understand nature, although I think Spinoza goes further than Descartes in that respect. The search for truth guided by our rational faculties and not by fealty to any kind of authorities, the church or Aristotle. So in, in one sense, the project is very Cartesian, a search for truth through the guidance of reason. But Spinoza goes places that Descartes wouldn't dare to tread. He has a wonderful articulation of the psychology of religious belief. And um, reading about that, it made me think of a YouTube video I've seen where a, a Christian pastor is holding up a banana and he calls the banana the atheist's nightmare because the banana supposedly displays qualities that prove the existence of a divine designer. So he says that, you know, the, the banana is perfectly shaped to be held in the human hand and <laughs> it's got a nice skin, keeps it clean until we decide to eat it. It has a sort of a ring pull at the end, <laughs> which makes it convenient for us to open. And all of this is held up as evidence that God just has to have made this thing for us. It's so perfectly fashioned to our needs and desires. What does Spinoza say about that kind of thinking? I think he's really interesting on this. He would probably say that that proves that God is a monkey um, (laughs) (laughs) who designed the perfect fruit for monkey hands. The argument from design, certainly for Spinoza, doesn't testify to the existence of a transcendent wise being. What it does uh, prove is that nature is law-governed, and that there are principles of nature which we can discover through reason and that we can understand. So nature is not some kind of random, unpredictable force. But it's a thoroughly different thing to say that, therefore, nature exhibits design. What you could say, I suppose, on Spinoza's behalf is that nature exhibits design in the same way in which a Darwinian would say nature exhibits design, that is, the laws of nature have led to a state of affairs where things turn out to be well adapted to their uh, circumstances, um, but that doesn't mean that they were there by virtue of some intelligent designer. And he, so he has no time for this idea that everything has a reason. Absolutely not. No, that's just superstition. That's imposing human purposiveness onto nature, and that is a grave mistake for him. Uh, he, I think he does think that human beings act for purposes. But to believe that nature or God acts for purposes and designs things and has goals in mind, Uh, in Spinoza's cosmos, nothing exists for the sake of anything else. Whatever is, just is, 
period. And it does happen to serve a purpose. It's only because it's either been designed by some human artisan to serve a purpose, or because perhaps through natural selection, it has become well-fitted to its environment. Mm. Now, of course, I'm reading back into Spinoza. He had no conception of evolution by natural selection. But I suppose that could lead one to attribute design, but it would be, in Spinoza's view, an invalid conclusion. Sure. So no miracles, no, no teleology, no purpose in nature, but also no moral ground, no good and evil for Spinoza. Is that right? There's no good and evil if by good and evil you mean things in and of themselves are good and evil without relationship to anything else. So cyanide, it's not that cyanide is evil, it's just that it's bad for human beings. And in fact, when translating Spinoza, um, he does use a term, terms uh, that often get translated as good, um, bonus, and bad, um, malus. Um, but rather than using the terms good and evil, I prefer good and bad, because evil has a sort of theological um, connotation. Nothing is good and bad in and of itself, taken without relationship to anything else. However, things really are good and some things really are bad, but only in relation to certain other things. So uh, bananas, by themselves, bananas are neither good nor bad, but they are good for human beings. They're a good source of potassium. They help us um, and carbohydrates and so on. Cyanide, taken by itself, is neither good nor bad, but it is bad relative to human beings. And so goodness and badness are defined by how well they contribute to or detract from the flourishing and well-being of individuals. So it's not as if he's um, doing away with ethics. There's a strong foundation for ethical behavior and for evil behavior. On our end, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and this week, a program about that monstrous heretic Baruch Spinoza, the Jewish philosopher who might have been cast out from his own religious community in 17th century Amsterdam, but his work has since been embraced as one of the intellectual pillars of secular modernity and of contemporary Judaism. Spinoza's quite a puzzle, and I'm talking about him this week with Stephen Nadler. Do you see something in Spinoza's Judaism, either just the Jewish milieu of his day or in his Jewish intellectual heritage, that leads him to philosophy and that leads him to the the particular kind of philosophy that he espouses? That's a good question. Um, I I think, you know, when we ask what led Spinoza to be Spinoza, I think in some ways the culprit, uh, what made Spinoza Spinoza was the city of Amsterdam, just this flourishing philosophical, intellectual, and literary culture where things could get published and circulate that wouldn't be able to uh, circulate elsewhere, as in Paris or London. But, you know, his, his exposure to medieval Jewish philosophy, I think, had a very uh, significant influence on him. Um, he was exposed to it perhaps after he'd become a merchant. He left his schooling relatively early after his father died. He never made it to the upper classes of Talmud in the Amsterdam Portuguese Jewish community. But he, I think he did continue his education in Jewish texts. And he certainly was well-read in Maimonides. Um, Maimonides, of course, was the great rabbinic authority, especially for Sephardic Jews. But he was also, um, in some ways, a very heterodox philosopher. There, there are two Maimonides. There's the Maimonides who codified Jewish law, 
who was interested in laying out the basic principles of Judaism and rabbinic doctrines uh, for people who didn't want to have to go through all those debates in the Talmud. But then there were some Maimonides who wrote The Guide of the Perplexed, which is a very dense, difficult, uh, and ambiguous work. And Spinoza was familiar with both Maimonides. And I think it's hard to read Spinoza and understand works like The Ethics without seeing it in relationship to Maimonides. And I think much of what Spinoza has to say about God, about nature, about virtue and understanding, and about immortality or eternity is really a kind of dialogue that he's engaged in with Maimonides and Gersonides and Ibn Ezra. And it'd be really hard to understand, for example, part five of the ethics, which is very opaque, without seeing it as a kind of logical or rational culmination of the medieval Jewish rationalism we find in Maimonides. Right. Yeah. So I'm interested in this because I'm reminded of the book of Job in in the Hebrew Bible and and the speech that God delivers to Job at the end of the story. So just for anyone who maybe doesn't know the story, Job is an innocent man who's been subjected to terrible suffering and he, he demands that God explain himself. And God says, there's no explanation, buddy. This is just me being me. God's going to do what God's going to do it. But he uses all these examples. God uses all these examples from the natural world in order to illustrate his power. You know, where were you when I created the oceans and so on? And it seems like a very Spinozan take on, on this problem of why bad things happen to good people. And, and I'm curious to know if Spinoza engaged in this, with this text in any significant way or, or, or with its tradition of interpretation. Um, the, the book of Job is really important for these sorts of questions in Jewish tradition. Almost every um, major Jewish philosopher wrote some kind of commentary on it. And, you know, in the end where God says to Job, shut up, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You weren't there. You have no idea what it's like to be God. If I might, I, I think it's in fact just the opposite of what Spinoza is saying in some sense. Um, a theodicy um, where you try to defend God's justice and show not just that bad things happen to good people and good things to bad people, but that there's a reason why. This is what Job's friends try to do in the story. They try to justify God's ways. Uh, and in the end, God says, no, you can't justify my ways because I'm incomprehensible. You cannot possibly understand me. Uh, for Spinoza, the whole project of theodicy is foolish, but for a different reason. It's not because God is incomprehensible and you can't possibly understand the justice of God's ways but because it makes certain assumptions about God that are simply unjustifiable, that God brings these punishments through God's will. I mean, if if we take the ending of Job seriously, um, God's will either is or is not guided by some principles of justice. But either way, that can't be Spinoza's conception of God. Spinoza's God doesn't act through the will, whether it's a rational will or a completely arbitrary will. At the same time, uh, for Spinoza, there is a reason why bad things happen to good people, and that reason is found in the causal operations of nature. If you act in certain ways, there will naturally be, through causally deterministic sequence, there will naturally be certain consequences. So if you live a life pursuing the wrong goods, you will suffer. Um, Well, then why do bad things happen to good people? That is, people who are not pursuing bad things. And in a way, Spinoza's answer is, well, they don't. If bad things happen to good people, they must have done something bad, not because God is punishing them, but because they must have somehow 
gotten caught up in a, in a causal sequence that leads to unfortunate consequences. In a way, it's a very Maimonidean approach to good and evil. Maimonides himself says that virtuous people do not suffer as long as they're virtuous, but occasionally a virtuous person will sort of step outside um, their virtuous behavior, and naturally they'll be at the mercy of luck and bad things will happen to them. For Spinoza, likewise, if you are pursuing virtue, if you're living the life of reason, if you are a, what he calls a free person, then you will do the things that you ought to do. You will pursue good things, and as a result, you will flourish. If you're not flourishing, it's because you're not living rightly, according to reason. Well, we know that Spinoza was excommunicated from his Jewish community uh, for unspecified heresies. It's often claimed that in that break, in, in, his, in his breaking away from the rabbinic authority of his day, that, that he was a forerunner of secular Judaism, and in particular the secular Zionist movement. Do you see him in that way? I don't, actually. Um, you know, the question of why he was excommunicated or put in a harem is one of the great mysteries, because the, the document that excommunicates him is this long, involved series of curses and damnations, and it's, it's obviously an angry document filled with vitriol, but all it says is because of his monstrous deeds and abominable heresies, he is to be um, put outside the people of Israel. Uh, but it doesn't tell us what those abominable deeds and monstrous heresies were. On the other hand, there's really no mystery here because as soon as one reads his uh, mature philosophical treatises, there's really no question why he earned the excommunication. His, his, his view of God, his denial of the possibility of miracles, his conception of the origins of the Bible as a purely human document, just a work of human literature. So you put all that together and there's really no mystery about the harem. I don't think, um, certainly not by design, did Spinoza envision secular Judaism. I would say he certainly doesn't see himself as a secular Jew. He sees himself as a, as a secular person. That is somebody for whom religious identity really plays no role in their conception of self. And on the Zionist issue, um, you know, a lot of people have seen him as foreseeing a reestablishment of a Jewish polity um, somewhere, perhaps right where the state of Israel currently is, uh, because of a statement he makes uh, in the theological political treatise where he says, and if, you know, if they can ever recover from their emasculation, uh, perhaps God will resettle them again in their land. I don't think that's an expression of hope, especially because Spinoza believes hope is a, a, an irrational, passionate attitude to take. It just is an attitude you take in the face of uncertainty. But, you know, if things turn out causally in a certain way, then perhaps a Jewish state will be restored once again. But if Zionism is defined as both an aspiration for a Jewish state and a protective attitude towards a Jewish state, I don't think we can attribute that to Spinoza. I was interested to read that in uh, in 1953, the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, um, David Ben-Gurion, ca- he called for Israel's chief rabbis to reconsider the excommunication of Spinoza and, and this question of whether or not Spinoza should be reclaimed by modern Judaism was, was hotly contested among the secular and religious factions in Israel at the time. What about today? Is, is Spinoza still a controversial figure in Israel? 
Uh, I wouldn't say he's a controversial figure in Israel. And in fact, he's quite a heroic figure. Um, I have here, in fact, a postcard. A friend of mine sent this to me. It's a postcard devoted to Israel that was issued by uh, the state of Israel when they um, commissioned a stamp with Spinoza on it. But certainly the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel probably do not look kindly on Spinoza. I was once visiting, um, my sister lives in Jerusalem, and I was visiting her, and I went with my brother-in-law to his yeshiva, and I was talking with somebody, and this old rabbi in the corner looks up and he says, did I hear somebody mention Spinoza? And I explained, yes, I'm, you know, I'm studying Spinoza. And he looks at me and he just shakes his head and goes right back to his book. He's obviously disappointed. <laughs> oh, that tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> it's, there's, there's no love lost between ultra-Orthodox Judaism and Spinoza. On the other hand, you know, some of the greatest Spinoza scholars have been observant Jewish individuals. But the notion of lifting the cherem on Spinoza, it's still a live issue. The, the problem with Ben-Gurion is, first of all, he had no authority to lift the cherem, but then neither did the chief rabbi of Israel, because the only people authorized to lift the cherem against Spinoza is the community that issued it in the first place. So that would have to be the Talmud Torah congregation of Amsterdam, which still exists. And so a couple of years ago, um, one of the congregants of this congregation in Amsterdam asked the leaders of the community to consider lifting the harem. And so they commissioned four scholars, uh, myself and three others, um, to submit briefs. They didn't want us to uh, express an opinion about whether it was good or bad, but they wanted to know what were his philosophical views, what were the historical circumstances of the harem, what are the advantages of lifting the harem, and what would be the disadvantages. So we submitted our briefs. And they took all of that under advisement. And then they called a conference in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, and we all went. And uh, the audience was well over 500 people. And we presented our views. And the current rabbi of the congregation was there. And he rendered his opinion. Uh, What do you think it was? I'm going to go with not changing the harem. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, I think, though, that most members of the community would have liked to have seen the harem lifted. Um, if only because it's, it would be a great PR move. You know, you know we're, we're not the intolerant community of the 17th century. Spinoza is one of us, and we're proud to own him. Uh, but the rabbi's reasoning, which I'm sure was shared by quite a few members of the community anyway, was, uh, first of all, you know, who am I to overrule my 17th century predecessors? Am I that much wiser than them? And in fact, they knew the circumstances which we don't know. So I don't have the right or the the knowledge or the authority to overrule them. Uh, Secondly, um, he very well should have been put under harem because if he was expressing the kinds of views that we see in his philosophical writings around 1656, and there's evidence that he was, um, they were perfectly right to put him under the ban. And I think that's right. I think, you know, Spinoza knew the rules of the game and the rabbis warned him. And his response was, hey, you know what? I'm leaving anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that his his renegade status should be preserved. You know, it's like this terrible, you know, when, when a punk band gets given a multi-million dollar record <laughs> right. contract, right? We, we, don't, we don't want that. Right, exactly. <laughs> 
let's finish with Spinoza on death, because as you point out in your book, death pops up everywhere in the ethics. He devotes a good deal of the latter parts of the ethics to a very detailed discussion of death. And yet, ultimately, Spinoza comes to the conclusion that the appropriate way to deal with death is not to think of it at all. Think least of death, the title of your book. How does he arrive at this point? Uh, Mainly because if you really pay attention to what we are as human beings, uh, to what nature is, um, why would you think about death when there's absolutely nothing to think about? Ordinarily, um, Spinoza was greatly influenced by the ancient Stoics thinkers like Seneca and Epictetus. Uh, And the ancient Stoics said, meditate constantly upon death, um, and that way you'll be prepared to face it. Uh, In this case, I think Spinoza departs from the ancient Stoics and really throws his lot in with the Epicureans, like Lucretius. They say, uh, well, death is nothing to me because where I am, death is not, and where death is, I am not. Spinoza's view is that when you're dead, you're dead. There's no such thing as the immortal soul, there is no afterlife, there is no world to come. And to think that there are such things is really to fall prey to pernicious superstitions. If you think there's an immortal soul, if you think there's an afterlife, then you're really going to live in constant fear of eternal punishment and hope for eternal reward, which means it's likely that you'll do what the preachers, the rabbis, or the priests tell you to do. And that's a life of, of bondage. It's not a life of freedom. Once you realize that you are here for a brief durational time and that when you're dead, you're dead, then that should be a liberating thought. You won't constantly ponder what's going to happen to your immortal soul after you die because there is no such thing. And you can focus not so much on any alleged eternal rewards and punishments in some other world, but you can focus on the rewards of virtue in this life. So don't think about death because that's a life of bondage. Think about the joy of living in this life and the freedom and happiness you get from the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. That that is true, what he says, true blessedness and true salvation. Spinoza suffered from poor health and he died young and one would imagine rather horribly. Do we know how he viewed the prospect of his own death or does he seem to have followed his own advice and just not wasted time thinking about it or at least not writing about it? I wish we knew. Um, When he died, his um, friends published his previously unpublished writings and a good number of letters, but they did not publish letters that had any kind of personal reflections or autobiographical material which is a real shame. Um, We do know that one of his friends, a man named Peter Balling, lost his son. And Spinoza wrote him a comforting letter in which he kind of played along with Balling's superstitious beliefs and perhaps reinforced Balling's, Balling was a Mennonite, reinforced his beliefs that perhaps he'll be reunited with his son. Uh, It's certainly not something that Spinoza would have believed himself. Um, I like to think that he regarded his own imminent death with the same kind of stoic, um, rational attitude that he displays with respect to things like honesty and courage and fortitude. Um, you know, I, I get the sense that he, he was able to live his life according to his philosophical opinions. And based on um, third-person accounts of what he was like, that seems to, you know, seems to reinforce that view. 
Stephen Nadler, Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's the author of Think Least of Death, Spinoza on How to Live and How to Die. Publication details on the website, that's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P Zone. Thanks for your company this week. Bye for now. Thank you.